Nain Bethany. Well, like we were told, we're going to read something difficult this morning, um, but we will make it through it. Um, so if you'll turn to Genesis 34, we'll be reading the entire chapter, 1 through 31. I'll give you a minute to do that. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were, in, were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Wow, the audacity. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take your daughters for yourselves, our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone." Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do this thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his people's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters and wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor, to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised. All who went out of the city of his all, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, 
Two of the sons, boy, imagine that. Um, Sorry. Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All this wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Pam, for taking on that hard passage this morning. This morning we do come to the final uh, two, final, first of our final two messages in our series, The Life of Jacob, A Story of Struggle and Grace. Pray with me for a moment, will you? Spirit, we need you to open your word to us, to fill our hearts and minds with compassion for victims, to give us the humility to identify with the acts of Jacob and maybe even his sons in the story, and find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ for justice and mercy, forgiveness, and grace. So do that now, we ask the Spirit. Amen. Well, remember, Jacob, we'll do a little quick ca- uh, review as we've, uh, as we've been away from this for a little while, he fled his father-in-law Laban with his four wives and children and is returning to the promised land as he's been commanded to do. He he has wrestled with God in a spiritual, really high point in his life when he showed amazing faith. He's reconciled with his brother Esau, whom he had betrayed, remember that, but even deceives Esau as he doesn't follow his brother to his home as Esau says, come on, let's live together, let's get homes near each other, but he heads in another direction and stops short of Bethel, where God has commanded him to go. He stops short in this town called Shechem, about 20 miles. And Shechem is where this tragic story takes place. It is here where we see this grotesque and distorted sin that mars lots of image bearers here. We sent out this week in our email a little warning, a little disclaimer uh, of the difficult matter of this topic, which we like to do, especially for parents of young children, but even parents of teens today. I want to encourage you. Our primary place of discipleship is to be the home. And so even parents, as you hear this today, you're sitting with one of your teens, have a conversation about it after church. Ask them what they thought of the story. Ask them what they thought of um, who Christ is in this story. Don't let this moment pass by for a teachable moment. Uh, But for all of us, too, in our growth groups this week as well, sensitive topic Material, Growth Group Shepherds email went out a little late with a video, training video. I encourage you to watch that before you lead your groups this week as well. Well, Jacob's partial obedience of stopping in the promised land at Shechem rather than returning to where God had commanded at Bethel brings this alarming grief 
and injustice upon his daughter Dinah and his family. Uh, But responding, as we're going to see, to evil and injustice with even greater evil and injustice as Jacob's sons do is never the right solution. Here's a few questions we're going to ask and answer this morning to let you know where we're going today. Where's God in this story? He's not mentioned. Did you catch that? And actually, there's going to be a lot of things that we wish were recorded in this story, which weren't. Where's Dinah's voice? Where's her mom? Or other people? Their their voice isn't there. And what do we make of Dinah's horrible plight? We're going to ask and answer that. Here's another one. Where have we been tempted to betray our call as disciples to the gospel to win, win, win the smaller battles like Simeon and Levi do by betraying something God had given to them that was good? And how about this? How, how gracious is God who uses people like this and us for his gospel purposes? We've got alarming grief, but alarming grace actually in this story too. As we started, you heard a lot of our themes singing today about grace. And here's our final question. Where does Jesus speak to those who have been wronged, hurt, whose stories are silent, or have been silenced, or haven't been listened to. I know we have some here today, I'm sure. Or people who long for justice. Let's begin. Let's unpack this horrific, tragic story in the life of God's people and find hope and grace and justice and mercy in Jesus our Lord today. So let's do it. Let's start by looking at Jacob's partial obedience and his passivity in the face of evil. His partial obedience and passivity in the face of evil that only incites a greater evil, actually, I believe, in this story. There's so much, as you fill in that first uh, fill-in there, there's so much that's compressed in these first three verses here. But we back up for a moment to address the fact, as we've already mentioned, that Jacob's partial obedience actually brought about this horrific incident. His partial obedience to the Lord. He had taken his family... If he had, excuse me, taken his family all the way to Bethel, this probably never would have happened. But his partial obedience actually isn't obedience at all. Sure, he's back in the promised land borders, but it's not actually obedience at all. And partial obedience never is. It's usually self-justified sin that attempts to pose as obedience. Or as I heard it put one other way this week, partial obedience is only disobedience that's made to look acceptable. Jacob, who had just come off now, remember his face-to-face encounter with God, is now, he's back in the slums again, (laughs) which is, I think, why we've been repelled, but also attracted to Jacob, because he's much like us, in and out of obedience and in and out of faithful decisions. He's lacking trust now, again. He's stopping 20 miles short of the finish line where he's supposed to go. He's exposing his family to hostile forces and great danger, and in particular, Dinah. And we are going to say her name today because, if you notice, none of the men in the story do. Her name isn't mentioned. I'm sure it's mentioned by the author, but she's just called the girl and woman. We're going to say her name, Dinah, because remember, she's the daughter of Leah, the woman he didn't love or loved way less than Rachel. And so what does that mean for Leah's kids? In verse 1 we read here, verse 1 says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, when went out to see the woman of the land. 
And there's some intrigue there. Dinah has with these women of the land. It's probably not a well-intentioned trip out to see the women of the land. Think of the idea maybe of sneaking out after curfew or after dark when your parents are in bed. Something along those lines Moses is probably trying to communicate to us. And as she does, the horrific happens. She becomes the victim of rape. Even if there is some debate, and there is, over whether it was seduction or rape, most commentators think that Shechem, named after the city where they're at, the son of Hamor, this powerful man, seizes her, lays her, the Hebrew says, it's lays with her maybe in the English, but it's actually lays her and humiliates her. And Jacob responds by holding his tongue. He holds his peace, the scripture says. His partial obedience is now passivity in the face of evil. And I think it even incites a greater evil in his sons when he holds his tongue and seems to disregard the violence for Dinah and what she's been through. Passivity, partial obedience, they always cause big problems. How about for us? Partial obedience. Maybe it's apologizing to our spouse while still holding on to secret bitterness and withholding affection, even though it looks like on the surface we've obeyed. Maybe it's knowing you have to pay taxes, but cutting some corners, fudging some numbers here and there. Maybe it's knowing that looking at graphic pornography is sinful, but what can I find on Instagram that's not quite as graphic? Partial obedience. Maybe it's telling your parents, your aged parents, you'll watch over their finances and skimming a little off the top that I've done so much for them. They would understand. Kids, youth, maybe it's telling your parents you've turned your homework in, but you only did two out of the 20 questions. Or saying you studied and it was like this. What is it for us? Partial obedience. Let's unpack some principles a bit more under this idea of Jacob's passivity and his partial obedience. Here's our first one. Compromising has consequences. Jacob compromises on his relationship with God. And therefore, what does he do? He compromises as his role of a spiritual leader, a father, a husband, a protector. He's compromising all over the place, all over the place. And the consequences that we've already heard and seen are immense for Dinah, his daughter. And his sons, as his sons commit genocide, that's what it is. It's genocide, a whole town, the males of the town. And how about... <clears throat> As they commit genocide, all those women of Shechem, they lose their husbands, their property, their homes as they're taken away. Now, Jacob could have no idea what the future would bring as he was passive in the face of evil for a bit, compromising with his obedience. He could have no idea what the future would bring, but God allows him in his sin to face incredibly alarming and extreme consequences. You have to see that Jacob is culpable here. An alarming amount of grief and pain is brought to this family. Maybe you can relate. 
similar circumstances or have been let down as a woman by men in your own life. Alarming grief brought to this family, but just as shocking in the story today is the alarming grace too. That's why the title of the sermon is Alarming Grief and Alarming Grace. This is God's chosen patriarch, Jacob, the chosen father of God's people. Why does he continue to work through him? And with him in the midst of compromise and then his passivity in the face of great sin? We'll answer that later. It has compromise, compromise has consequences, but here's another one. Ignoring sin has consequences too, as Jacob does in this story. Us, but Shechem falls in love with Dinah. It's just, it doesn't make much sense. It's shocking. Who we find out later is being held at his house, whether <clears throat> hostage or by her will, we don't know. But this love spoken of is not Hesed covenant love of God. That word Hesed is a Hebrew word. It's, it's a covenantal love, a, a giving of yourself, a sacrificing of yourself. The word love here that Shechem uses for Dinah is not that word. It's probably more an attraction or lust. So what does he do? Shechem sends his powerful dad, get me this girl for my wife, he says. And Leah doesn't even get to speak here, or Dinah's other possible sisters. It's not mentioned. They're not mentioned. They're absent. And Dinah herself never gets to speak in the story. If she ever did, we don't know. And where we would expect Father Jacob to speak up, the scripture says he holds his peace. It's a question. Would you hold your tongue if your daughter was assaulted? Now, maybe it was wise for a time to hold his tongue and, and wait for the sons to return, but we know he never loved Leah, Dinah's mom. And, and look how he speaks of his sons when he presumes things have fallen upon them. How about Joseph? When he thinks that Joseph is dead, how does he respond? This looks different than Dinah. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins, and he mourned for his son many days. Joseph, we presume dead. Or how about Benjamin, who he was worried would be endangered when they were, the brothers are going to take him down to Egypt, as we'll get to in coming weeks. How about with the son? But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you're to make, you'd bring down gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Jacob is not portrayed favorably here. And his response, his passivity probably contrib contributes to and fuels his son's fury at the act of their sister's defilement. Well, what about us, dad? Simeon and Levi say, what about us, dad? You're quiet? What about Dinah? Jacob doesn't stand up for his daughter or for his God with the sin that is done. He's silent pretty much for the rest of the story. Ignoring sin has consequences. And for us, the lesson is that overlooking sin or downplaying it is always disastrous. That doesn't mean we're to run around being uh, the most judgmental people, self-righteously condemning people. No, but sin has to be addressed. And yet many times we 
downplay it or overlook it. Sometimes as Christians, we misuse verses like, well, judge not lest you be judged to overlook or ignore sin. The lives of those who are responsible for in our families, in our churches, in our workplaces, we do that. Or we want to attempt to look kind and nice by overlooking, ignoring someone's sin against us, but then we go on harboring grudges. That's not addressing sin. That's not what God asks for or wants. Or we cover up and ignore sexual sin in the church for the sake of leaders and their institutions at the expense of the victims. Think the recent very public high-profile cases, that's why I mentioned them, of Ravi Zacharias and Bill Hybels. It's sin, and we ignore it. It's sin we don't want to deal with, and here in our story, maybe the genocide would have been avoided had Jacob stepped up. It's a problem we see in him, and yet God continues to work with him. Let's look at our second issue in this story. Moving into the sons and their response and the tragedy that unfolds, we're never to express righteous anger, which they have, Simeon and Levi, in an unrighteous way. They're right to be angry. We hope Jacob was, but we know the sons are, her brothers. So this powwow happens between powerful men, between Shechem and his father, Hamor, uh, with Jacob's sons. And notice, as we said, Jacob is, 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 is curiously quiet here. And his sons pretty much push him aside, push him out of the way, and they take over negotiations here. He's relinquished his leadership that he was to exercise passive. And now the brothers, they are right to be enraged. Righteous anger was the right response to this heinous act. It was put upon their sister. But, but look how this goes down. Hamor speaks first. Pick it up at verse 8 with me. But Hamor spoke with them. They're in this powwow now saying, and Hamor is the one who um, is the father of Shechem who assaulted Dinah. Hamor spoke with them saying, the son of my son Shechem, he longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. No apology for the rape. No mention that Dinah is actually being held captive, as we see later. They get her from the house. Let's just be one big happy family. Get married and we'll, we'll give you the promised land. But wasn't that actually God's to give to Jacob? Not Hamor's. It's a shortcut to the promised land that's been offered to them. And then Shechem throws in his two cents. I'll give you whatever you want. Just give me the girl. And the son's response, look at verse 13 again. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he defiled their sister Dinah. There's deceptions going on here all over the place in this story. And we shouldn't be surprised. They're like their father, who is the great deceiver, Jacob. Sons have not fallen very far from the tree. They're no different. They provide a plausible solution, since circumcision, which is the solution they, they, they provide, well, we can't 
join you. We are of the circumcised people. We're God's people. It's a plausible solution since circumcision was often used even to initiate marriage by some pagans. They actually did use it at times. And at this time, it would probably would have been well known that this people group, uh, that this tribe, would, uh, that Yahweh had asked them to circumcise as a holy sign of the covenant, would have been well known. So it's plausible what they asked them to do, actually. The pagans use circumcision as well. Um, it's a sign for them of joining his holy people. Uh, as circumcision was a holy sign of his covenant given to Abraham, we know, way back in our Genesis series. But they're deceiving with it. They didn't want to use the, the sign, the sacred sign, to evangelize and convert as it was given. They were going to use circumcision for genocide. They're misusing and profaning something that God has given to them that's holy, that's set apart, that's meant to be used for the good of the world and to bring the world into God's people, now they're going to use it to commit genocide. They're misusing and profaning something that's holy, like taking the tithe and spending it on themselves, like using the gospel to promote prosperity, like pretending to be a Christian so you can date the Christian girl, and the irony here is that the member Shechem used to assault Dinah, you know what I mean by that, he's now being asked to circumcise that member of his body. They take the symbol of faith and use it for death and murder. And the parties both consent. But Hamor and Shechem, they're crafty too, and they convince all the men of Shechem to be circumcised. They had to be <laughs> pretty crafty. Look at verse 23. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. What's happening here? They're, they're ready to deceive too. They want to swallow up God's people. Hey, let us, let, us, let us use God's people for our financial gain. So Simeon and Levi, we're going to use circumcision to destroy a people. And Hamor and Shechem go back to the people and say, hey, let's get them and use them and get all their stuff. Let's let them into the land. No mention of Dinah in the whole thing. So here we bring the principle to bear on ourselves. Compromising Jesus' name for a win is never right. Never it's never right to compromise Jesus' name for a win. Jesus doesn't need us to tarnish his name with our lives, with our actions, with our words, with taking something that's holy and good and using it for other purposes. He doesn't need us to accomplish something that we might think is a good goal or win for our side. Like getting the promotion at work by taking credit for someone else's work. Like throwing full-throated, shameless vocal support behind ungodly political leaders on both sides of the aisle who bring shame on the name of Jesus and the church. Now hear me. I'm not talking about a vote with your nose held, a lesser of two evils. I'm talking about those that fully from the evangelical church went on the line for Trump. That's what I'm talking about. 
I'm not talking about a, a vote with your nose held. That in the last years has done more damage to the sake of the gospel for the name of a win. I'm talking about full-throated vocal support. That has done damage to Jesus' name. Hear me again. I'm not talking about choosing the lesser of two evils. I'm talking about going on the line for a victory and attaching Jesus' name to it. For, For corrupt political leaders, both sides of the aisle now. But that's the one that's impacted our, our camp the most. Compromising Jesus' name for a win. It's never right. Again, I'll say it again so you hear me. I'm not talking about choosing the lesser of two evils. I'm talking about full-throated vocal support. Here's another. Let's keep going. These are, everyone's going to be made to feel uncomfortable with some of these, so just, it's okay. How about speaking out and seeking justice for the oppressed minority by reversing the oppression on the dominant group, like CRT has done, critical race theory? Or how about speaking out against racial poverty and justice while enticing sexual sinners by throwing out the entire biblical sexual ethic to be on the right side of history, compromising the name of Jesus for a win? Or the flip side of that, being so outwardly vocal about sexual sin, but unable to speak about injustices that happen to the poor and racial minorities, compromising the name of Jesus for a win. How about this one? Selling a cheap gospel to attract seekers, a cheap grace, a cheap Jesus who doesn't require anything of us, but loves us so much he doesn't require real change or real sacrifice. Compromising Jesus' name for a win. How about probably more likely, I just don't really want to speak out about too many wrongs. We just don't talk about that here. We don't want to give Jesus a bad name, all the while ignoring gross sin. How about covering up the sins of the church so we don't bring bad reputation on the church, all the while dismissing the victims and real hurt people? It's happening in evangelical church after church right now, across our land. And as I said, I realized I I probably offended every one of us with one of those today. But if we don't have a God who can contradict and challenge and provoke us at some point, we're not worshiping the God of the Bible. We're worshiping a God of our own making. Of course I'm going to say things that make you feel uncomfortable. Of course the Bible is going to challenge us, even at some of our deepest held beliefs. Simeon and Levi did it. They took circumcision and killed a people with something God called holy. We shouldn't think we're above also committing a similar sin by taking the name of Jesus and compromising it for a win. These are all examples of compromising Jesus' name and mission. And So the question is, where have we been prone and tempted to do that? To give up the soul of the church to win a smaller battle. We've had some real temptations with that in the past years. To give up the soul of the church to win a smaller battle. So how should we respond? With conflict, these decisions come up, these two things are put before us, and we might be tempted to compromise Jesus' name for something. It's definitely not the way Simeon and Levi do. We must bring honor to God in the way we respond 
to injustice and wrongs. Honor to God in how we respond. Violence taken at their hands with our own hands is is not right. Let's let it sink in what happens here. Look down at the words. Please follow along with me for these. I really want these to sink in what Simeon and Levi did. On the third day, that is after the circumcision, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives. All that was in the houses they captured and plundered. The Bible does not spare us from dark details, does it? It's not a boring book. You can never say that about the Bible. It does not spare us from the dark events and it takes a dark turn here. By seeking real justice that was right, they've probably missed the mark way much further than Shechem and Hamor here as with their response. Because now there's a whole city of women and children who are without their husbands and fathers, and now their daughter Dinah, their sister Dinah has to live with that. I'm sure there were some thoughts in her mind like, you did what? A greater evil never can erase another evil. It just can't happen. That's not justice, but that's what they do. And again, it's missing. Like God's name from the story, like Dinah's testimony, like her mother Leah's words, where are those? Like Jacob's grief that's missing. We don't hear the cries of these women and children whose husbands and fathers were killed. I think it's intentional silence. And add to that Jacob's silence in the final verse, or actually you could call it his tragic final blunder in this story. He doesn't, he's not shown their rejoicing over Dinah's return. He doesn't even chastise the sons for their genocide. He should be outraged. It's not justice. As horrific as the crime was against Dinah, it doesn't justify the death of countless others and the destruction of numerous families the destruction of these wives and children's lives, this, this is a disaster for Jacob at the end of this story here. What is he concerned with? His reputation. His reputation. How is this going to make me look, guys? He's concerned with self-preservation. We will stink to everyone is what the story said. Here's how we should respond to wrongdoings, injustices, to interpersonal conflicts with this. How can I respond in such a way that will bring the most honor to God? We don't naturally do this. How often do you pause enough before something to ask this? How can I respond in a way that will bring the most honor to God? I've been using this question recently, even in some recent conflicts within our own Church body, how can you respond in a way that will bring the most honor to God? 
Not how can you respond to save face the most like Jacob does or make your enemy pay the most like Simeon and Levi do to look vindicated, maybe powerful, win at all costs. No, how can we respond in such a way that will bring the most honor to God? That's our call. That's the question that should be at the front of our conflicts, our hard decisions, everything. It's pretty clear that no one did that here in our story. All the victims are voiceless, and the powerful take matters into their own hands. And this is the thought I was left with at the end of studying this week. None is righteous, no, not one. That's what I was left with. Not just Jacob or Simeon and Levi, not just Hamor and Shechem, but us too. None is righteous, no, not one. And I think that's one of the main points of the story. I think that's why it's left so bleak. How can God love a man like Jacob? His grace. His grace. It's alarming grief, but as I said, it's alarming grace too in the story here. He doesn't destroy Jacob or or the sons. He actually protects them as they travel to Bethel after this story and reveals himself to Jacob again in a very visual way as he's at Bethel. And and he reiterates the covenant again to Jacob and says, I'm with you. Nations will come from you. Kings will come from you. We'll get to that next week. Grace to this man and his sons. I mean, if we can't see a picture here of the fact that salvation, God's grace, is not a thing earned, look at the life of Jacob. It's given by God's sovereign grace and a sovereign God who gives this grace to whomever he chooses to. Look at Jacob's life. Definitely not based on our track record. Look at Jacob, our performance. Look at Jacob, our intelligence at getting the gospel or a manufactured faith. It's grace. Look at Jacob. You know, we're not just being need to be thrown a life raft flailing in the ocean. We're dead on the bottom of the sea. So how can God love us? You look at how does he love a man like Jacob? How can God love us? Jacob's only hope is the Christ who would come from his family line. Now, uh, hundreds of years before him, Jacob's ultimate son who would pay the penalty for his sins, his partial obedience, his his silence in the face of evil, his lack of concern over his violated daughter Dinah, for his lack of love of Leah that's still going on, for his lack of concern over his son's sin. Grace held on to Jacob when Jacob let go of grace, when he let go of God. God holds on to us. Daily, and it's grace that takes care of our sins at the cross and keeps holds on to us every day. That's our only hope for our, my own partial obedience that I am guilty of. I am guilty of. I am guilty of. Partial obedience. Or my own passivity in the si- in silence in the face of sin. Or my own attempts to win by compromising Jesus' name. Or when I don't ask, how can I honor God in this conflict right now? 
Do, do you see how absurd it is when salvation is this big and grace is this all-encompassing to respond with anything less than full obedience? It's absurd, actually. And yet we do that. But how about the silent victims? We have to close there. How about all the silent victims of this story? Dinah, first and foremost, Leah, and the women and children of Shechem. So much is missing from this story, as we said. Their voices and, their, and a proper justice for these women. It's missing from the men in their lives. Maybe you've been through a horrible tragedy in your own life. You feel like your side of the story was never quite heard. Or maybe it was heard and maybe it was dismissed flat out. And your tears of suffering, maybe you felt they just weren't seen by anyone. They have been by God. You kept count of my tossing. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? He knows them. He's seen them. Whether it was last year or 40 years ago. Jesus writes them down in his book. He knows every tear you've shed. At every trial, every tragedy, and every time you felt no one knows what I've been through. So hear that hope from him today and be one who speaks it to others as well. It passes on that hope when you comfort someone in their trial. Maybe you're here today and this is like a story, you know the phrase, a trigger warning, a story that triggers you. And you've had someone maybe salt you. Physically, emotionally, Maybe your brothers and fathers failed you like they did with Dinah. Or maybe you've just been disappointed tremendously by your loved ones. Psalm says, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Our father in heaven, he wasn't silent. He wasn't passive in the face of evil. No, he spoke from heaven by sending Jesus. He sent him. He sent a better big brother for us than Simeon and Levi were to Dinah. Jesus, who didn't slaughter innocents, but shed his own blood for us. He's the better brother. He's the better one. He who knew no sin became sin for us. This true father, this true brother Jesus will never let you down. He will never disappoint you. What happened to Dinah? We don't know, actually. She disappears from the pages of Scripture. Did she marry? We don't know. Did she have kids? We don't know. Did she reconcile with her father and brothers through this? We don't know. What happened to the women and children of Shechem? What did Jacob and his sons do with them? We don't know. Injustice is rampant in the world. And maybe you've had a terrible wrong done to you and justice was never served. Like so many stories in our lives and in the news. How many stories justice is never served? And actually in this world, approximate justice is only ever really available. 
true justice, we can't really get to that on this earth. But I know one thing. We are not more just than God. Perfect justice will be served one day. Even if you've been wronged and seen not a shred of justice. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. We may not have justice in this lifetime, but listen. Listen for his voice when other voices are absent. Listen for his pardon when maybe you've been someone who's committed an unjust act or where you've been partially obedient. Listen to his voice, the voice of comfort, as we mourn for wrongs done to us and wrongs we've done to others. And when your voice doesn't feel heard, and maybe it never has been, listen for his words of comfort. And let all of us listen to each other in our suffering too. Pray with me. Lord, comfort us in our affliction. Comfort us with the one who came from earth to speak in the face of real oppression and real evil and real sin and the one who made true justice and restoration possible. Jesus, the better big brother than Simeon and Levi. And you, the father who wasn't passive in the face of evil. Thank you, Jesus, that we have you on our behalf. Give the suffering Give the one who's experienced grotesque abuse today, even in our own congregation, comfort in the fact that you too suffered great tragic abuse. And yet you rose from the grave and someday will undo and bring perfect justice to your new world. And let us be a church that pursues justice for people, the right kind, the biblical kind, for the weak and the hurt and the lonely and the sad and the broken the biblical justice, not the justice of a culture that is manipulated and false and halfway like Simeon and Levi's, but a justice that is rich and deep and points people to the resurrected Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.